Hello, and welcome to Fangrass Audio, episode 892. On this edition of the podcast, we must once again honor some Hall of Fame ballplayers that we have recently lost. Jay Jaffe begins by remembering Whitey Ford and Joe Morgan, who both had incredible careers that are worth revisiting. He is then joined by Eric Longenhagen, as the pair expand on Morgan's legacy and how it relates to baseball culture in recent decades. Eric and Jay also reflect on their own positions in the baseball past and present, as well as possibly the future. Nobody needs Hall of Fame analysis done from within the front office. And my math skills aren't, aren't good enough to... Whose to number should we retire? Let's get yeah, Jaffe exactly. on the case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean. Following that, David Lorla is joined by Dan Dickerson, radio play-by-play broadcaster for the Detroit Tigers. David and Dan discuss the current Tigers club, some great squads from history, and of course, the legend of that Maglio Ordonez home run from the 2006 ALCS. There's already one out, if not two, but Maglio is the first person he runs into. Now, Maglio's due up fifth that inning, and it's kind of like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, do we need to put up the plastic? And Maglio goes, put it up. Fangraphs Audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. If you like the episode, consider a membership for yourself or a friend over at Fangraphs.com. We are endlessly grateful for your help. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. The year 2020 has been an incredibly rough year for all of us, but particularly so for Baseball Hall of Famers. It was just a week ago that I paid tribute to Bob Gibson, who died on October 2nd, and in that span we've lost both Whitey Ford and Joe Morgan as well, bringing the total number of Hall of Famers who have passed away this year to six. Al Kaline, Tom Seaver, and Lou Brock preceded them. Later on this podcast, I'll speak to Eric Longenhagen a bit about the complicated post-career legacy of Morgan as it pertained to our corner of the baseball world, but here I wanted to offer a somewhat more traditional tribute both to his career and to that of Ford for this edition of the Cooperstown Casebook Corner. It is perhaps somewhat fitting that Whitey Ford passed away in October at the age of 91, for his name is all over the World Series record books. As a member of the Yankees from 1950 to 1967, he pitched in 11 World Series and would have added two more had it not been for a stint in the Army. As a front-of-the-rotation mainstay who was generally his manager's top choice to start Game 1, he racked up record-setting counts in several categories, making 22 World Series starts, throwing 146 innings, going 10-8 and in his decisions, and striking out 94. Those numbers will probably never be surpassed due to both free agency and to the expansion of the postseason format. He was on the winning side in six of those World Series and the losing side in five, and his best performances didn't always line up with those of his teammates. For example, he threw two shutouts totaling 18 scoreless innings in 1960, the year that Bill Mazeroski's walk-off home run sent the Yankees to defeat in Game 7. Those shutouts marked the beginning of a record-setting 33 and two-thirds inning scoreless streak, four more innings of Babe Ruth. Always quick with a quip, Ford told reporters in 1961 as he closed in on the record, I had thought Ruth was a lousy pitcher who they made into a hitter. I looked at the baseball encyclopedia one day and was stunned at what I found out. A streetwise son of New York City, Ford was not a physically commanding presence, standing just 5 foot 10 and 180 pounds. In fact, he's the shortest of the post-World War II pitchers elected to the Hall. But what he lacked in brawn, he made up for in brains, a cerebral and crafty lefty. Manager Ralph Houck, who oversaw Ford after Casey Stengel was forced out in 1960, said of him, he had a pitch for every situation and every hitter. Pitching coach Johnny Sane, whose tweaks helped to improve Ford's ability to rely upon his slider, said, he never throws a pitch without a purpose. Ford made 10 All-Star teams, led the AL in pitching Triple Crown categories five times, and won the Cy Young Award in 1961. He was elected to the Hall of Fame alongside his longtime teammate and drinking buddy Mickey Mantle. What's interesting about his statistical footprint is that he's the best known for his lopsided 690 winning percentage, with 236 wins against only 106 losses. We don't talk of wins nearly as much these days, especially around fan graphs, and with good cause, because we understand how dependent they are upon the work of teammates. Offenses to provide run support, defenses to make the plays behind the pitcher, and bullpens to protect the leads that he hands off. But in the days before sabermetrics, at a time when pitchers were far more likely to pitch complete games because they weren't going 3-2 and two to every hitter, or worrying whether the number 7 or 8 hitter in the lineup could take them over the wall, it was a stat that got a lot of focus. 
When I was at Baseball Prospectus, I had Colin Wires crunch some numbers, and we discovered that Ford received offensive support that was 13% above the league average, the benefit of having Mantle, Yogi Berra, and Roger Maris and other big bats in the lineup. He also had his share of defensive wizards behind him, such as Cleet Boyer, Tony Kubek, and Gil McDougald, though his ability to limit hard contact and to generate ground balls likely worked in his favor as well. For the first nine seasons of his career, which is to say the years that he was available from 1950 to 1960, Ford started more than 30 games just once and never got to 20 wins, which was seen as the hallmark of a top pitcher. His usage was somewhat limited by Casey Stengel, who had the luxury of saving him for the team's top competition. Years ago, a researcher named Jason Brannon found that Ford made 40% more starts against the AL's top two teams in any given season than its bottom two. When Houck took over in 1961, he asked Ford if he'd like to start every fourth day, and Ford was eager. After averaging 28 starts from 1953 to 1960, he jumped to an average of 37 starts from 61 to 65, only some of which was due to the lengthening of the schedule from 154 to 162 games. He was extremely good at run prevention. His 133 ERA plus is tied for 10th among pitchers with at least 3,000 innings. What's interesting, though, is that he doesn't fare particularly well in Baseball References' version of wins above replacement, even given its adjustments for the quality of opponents and defensive support. He's got just 53.6 war by their methodology, and ranks 98th in my Jaws stat. But while his FIP-driven Fangraphs war total is a bit better at 58.0, his RA9 war, which is driven by actual runs allowed rather than fielding independent events, but doesn't have the same adjustments as, as Baseball References version, comes in at 78.2 war. That's 21st among post-World War II starters, which I think jibes a bit more closely with where one might expect him to rank given his stature. Obviously, there's far more to Ford's career than can be contained in a few minutes on a podcast. He was a revered character within the Yankees universe, known as a prankster and a partier, though unlike his running mates Mantle and Billy Martin, both of whom waged highly public battles with alcoholism and suffered the consequences for decades of abuse, he seems to have been less prone to excess. Don't drink everything in the bottle, leave some for the next guy, he once said. In later years, particularly after the death of Joe DiMaggio, Ford and Yogi Berra became the Yankees' inseparable ceremonial pair, on hand for first pitches and retirement ceremonies and the like. As a Brooklyn-based writer attending games as both a fan and a media member, I always enjoyed hearing the crowds when he was at Yankee Stadium and seeing the way that younger members reacted to and spoke of them, because he was so thoroughly beloved in a way that I think was less complicated than some of his teammates or rivals. As for more complicated legacies, there's Joe Morgan. On the one hand, he has long served as a poster child for the sabermetric appreciation of a ball player, but on the other hand, he became something of a whipping boy for his incoherent and retrograde critiques of the sabermetric movement, particularly as it pertained to teams utilizing advanced statistics in their front office decision-making. I went into depth on both fronts in my tribute, but I think that first and foremost, it's important to focus on the ball player. The undersized Morgan, all five foot seven and 160 pounds of him, has a claim as the greatest second baseman of all time. He's the rare 100-war player, and while he ranks fourth in Jaws among second basemen, well behind Rogers Hornsby, Eddie Collins, and Napoleon Lajouet, those three all played before integration, and thus against inferior competition. I don't think it's an unreasonable approach to discount their accomplishments in light of that if we're trying to distinguish between a statistical leaderboard and a fuller, more subjective ranking. Morgan spent the first nine seasons of his career, only six of which were full seasons, with the Astros, where he was very good and somewhat underappreciated. He was viewed by manager Harry Walker as a troublemaker. This is the Harry Walker whose brother Dixie is said to have instigated the infamous petition to keep Jackie Robinson off the Dodgers, and who himself is believed to have been part of the Cardinals' threat to boycott games against Robinson that same year. For his part, Morgan and other black players in the Astros viewed Walker as racist, something that he wrote about in his 1993 autobiography. Traded to the Reds in a lopsided November 1971 blockbuster, he took his game to a new level, and from 1972 to 76 in particular was probably the best player in the game, eclipsing even the other Red stars such as Pete Rose and Johnny Bench. Over those five seasons, he led the league in war four times and averaged 9.6 war according to baseball reference. By comparison, Mike Trout's best five consecutive seasons averaged 9.5 war and likewise those of Mickey Mantle. Barry Bonds is at 10.2, Willie Mays at 10.5. There's just not that many modern players you can place even close to that level of performance. In a 1972 Sports Illustrated feature, Morgan expressed pride in being the game's most complete player. To the traditional five tools he added an off-the-charts baseball IQ that shows up in the advanced stats, an elite plate discipline, and by his own admission, a certain arrogance. As he said in the piece, To be a star, to stay a star, I think you've got to have a certain air of arrogance about you, a cockiness, a swagger on the field that says, I can do this and you can't stop me. 
From a traditional standpoint, Morgan's numbers don't quite jump off the page. He hit for a 271 batting average with 268 home runs and 2,517 hits. He batted 300 only in his two MVP seasons in 1975 and 76. What this misses is both the context of his performance and the fact that he excelled at so many different facets of the game that either weren't entirely captured by the statistics that held sway at the time, or at least weren't focused upon. For example, Morgan's total of 1,865 career walks ranks fifth all-time, and so while he only ranked among his league's top 10 in batting average in the aforementioned two seasons, he was among the top 10 in on-base percentage 11 times, eight of those with at least a 400 on-base percentage, four times with the league lead and three more in second place. His career mark was 392, and what's more, he did it in a context where the league rates were comparatively low. Likewise with regards to ballpark, since he spent six of his first 19 seasons calling the Houston Astrodome home. His 132 OPS plus matches that of Tony Gwynn and is one point ahead of both Wade Boggs and Rod Carew. That's 20 batting titles right there between that trio, and he was their equal with the bat. That OPS plus is also tied with Rafael Palmero and a couple points ahead of Dave Winfield, Carl Yastrzemski, and Eddie Murray, guys who hit at least 450 home runs while playing spots with far less defensive responsibility. In fact, Morgan's 266 home runs as a second baseman was actually the most at his position until others surpassed him, first Ryan Sandberg and then Jeff Kent, with Robinson Cano having since eclipsed all but Kent. Then there was Morgan's base running. He stole 689 bases, which is 11th all-time, and 5th among players after World War II behind only Ricky Henderson, Lou Brock, Tim Raines, and Vince Coleman. He never led the league, but he placed second seven times, five behind Brock and two behind Davey Lopes. He was successful 81% of the time, which is fifth among players with at least 600 attempts since 1951. He was 105 runs above average in terms of stolen bases and other base running, including double play avoidance. Again, we're kind of limited by how far back the data goes, but that's seventh since 1951. Morgan's defense was more of a mixed bag, and it's a shame we don't have more modern stats to better quantify it. He did win five gold gloves, all from 1973 to 77, and in those years was 24 runs above average according to total zone. The rest of the time he was 72 runs below average, and average or better in just four seasons. That's not Derek Jeter level bad, and always quite valuable even in the worst of those seasons when weighed alongside his other contributions. Morgan made the all-star team in each of his eight years with the Reds while helping them to five division titles, three pennants, and two championships. He had two game-winning hits in the 1975 World Series against the Red Sox and put up an MVP caliber performance when the Reds swept the Yankees the next year. After he hit free agency, he was the bane of a certain young Dodger fan's existence, helping the Astros win their first NL West title in 1980, preventing the Dodgers from tying the Braves on the final day of the 1982 season with a big three-run homer off Terry Forster, while a member of the Giants, and helping to sweep the Dodgers in the NLCS in 1983 as a member of the Wheeze Kid Phillies, alongside Big Red Machine teammates Pete Rose and Tony Perez. Morgan had a very successful post-playing career in broadcasting and on the boards of the Baseball Assistance Team, the Jackie Robinson Foundation, and the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He found some controversies that I explored more fully within my tribute at Fangraphs, and I think it was some of the same arrogance that he had as a player that carried over into his belligerence towards advanced stats when he was in broadcasting. Who knows baseball better than I do? That doesn't explain some of his nonsensical or incoherent ramblings about Moneyball or Bill James, or even the stats that support the idea of his all-around greatness, but I think it all starts from the same place. As Joe Posnanski wrote, More than one person has pointed out the great irony that envelops Morgan's baseball life. Joe Morgan the broadcaster never seemed to understand exactly what made Joe Morgan the ballplayer so electrifying and wonderful. I don't want to dwell too much upon Morgan's post-career mishaps here, except to say once again that if that's all you know about him, you owe it to yourself to get up to speed. It should suffice to say that I had my differences of opinion with him about that stuff and about the Hall of Fame, where he crusaded to keep PED users out. But there's no denying that he'd earned that pulpit at least. I can separate Morgan the player from Morgan the pain in the ass. He was one of the best of all time, and I consider myself lucky to have seen at least some of his career. I'll be back after the bump with Eric. And as we move into yet another segment of Fangraphs Audio, this is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. I'm joined by foremost Hall of Fame expert and Fangraphs Jedi master, Jay Jaffe. How's it going, Jay? Hey, I'm doing all right, Eric. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on. It's like sort of under grim circumstances that I 
put it out there into like the Fangraphs audio Slack channel ether that I wanted to talk about Joe Morgan, etc., etc. But you're as well equipped to do it as just about anybody, period, let alone at the site. So uh, it is a thing that we want to get into. It's just been like a weird time, well, period. And especially considering so many Hall of Fame baseball players have died in like the last 10 days. Is that like, <laughs> what's it been like to to eulogize like half a dozen Hall of Famers in the last couple of weeks? It's it's been very surreal. It's almost like you know we're one of those like murder mystery things where you know who's going to get bumped off next. Ten we've little had, Hall of Famers. Yeah, ten ten little Hall of Famers. I mean, okay, so uh, if I'm not mistaken, Tom Seaver died on August 31st, on or around August 31st, and since then we've lost Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, Whitey Ford, and now Joe Morgan. With the last three of those, Gibson, Ford, and Morgan, all coming this month. You know, and we're we're not even at the halfway point of October as we speak. Somebody said, and I haven't I haven't confirmed this, but somebody said the record for the most Hall of Famers dying in a single calendar year was seven, and we're at six now. Al Kaline passed away earlier this year. I have uh, had sort sort of developed this uh, this sideline of doing the doing these tributes. Uh, I guess um, it wasn't something that I intended to do, but it just got sort of in the habit of like, oh, I'll do this, and I counted today. I've done now. I think 17 tributes to deceased players here since I came on wow. at Fangraphs in February 2018. And I think nine of those are this year. They're not all Hall of Famers. Two of Joe Morgan's Astros teammates, Bob Watson and Jimmy Wynn earlier this year, for example. But yeah, it's it's kind of surreal. And it's certainly, you know, especially when there's playoffs going on, you know, to sort of take me out of the flow. But I've volunteered for this particular job, mostly because I think people you know, to find value in, in, you know, somebody trying to take a comprehensive look at, at these guys' careers and put it into historical perspective. I, of course, have, you know, my JAWS system, which, you know, which adds some weight to that. But, I'm you know, as as the senior member or a, a senior writer at Fangraphs and, and one of the oldest, I'm not sure if I'm the oldest, it's either myself or Dave or Lorelai, but I'm old enough to have seen some of these guys play. I certainly saw Morgan play. And so I think, you know, there's value in being able to pass that along because I know that as we're going to talk about here, there are a lot of people out there who don't know Joe Morgan's playing career and who know right. him more as a a cultural warrior, if you will, um, in uh, uh, the uh, uh, ongoing battle, you know, in, in terms of the way that baseball has changed over the past couple of decades. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting to me to see, you know, to read these pieces as they come out. It is sort of grim, but ultimately coincidental. If there's anything that's causing this, it is just that the explosion of national media, especially around baseball starting in probably the 1960s, started a decade-long stretch of, I think, national interest in sports that was kind of unprecedented. That was just such a, an innovative thing to put on TV and the players. And it's not just athletes, but you know, the David Bowie and Prince types of the world too. Like we just have a growing number of cultural figures period over time. And I think that that started to, to really accelerate around the time that most of the folks who have passed away over the last several months sort of came of age and, and became part of the, the baseball zeitgeist and the conversation surrounding it. And I know that like, especially with your work, the way it's concerned, it is so comprehensive and useful to me. And you mentioned seeing Joe Morgan play. And I certainly didn't see Joe Morgan play, but as it pertains to like the NFL, the way I think about the NFL is just it coming of age in the sixties when the two leagues merged and we had the Super Bowl, and I think of like John Facenda and NFL Films. Really, it was it's just short enough of a history for that sport that as a kid, I was able to wrap my arms around it and sort of have a an understanding of the history of it from basically start to finish because it just didn't exist for quite as long as baseball did. And baseball as a thing has just been around for so much longer that I just don't have any conceivable way of of feeling done, like feeling as though I have a comprehensive understanding of the entire history of the thing. And like, I've read Lords of the Realm, and I think that there are a few touchstone books and maybe films that people can go to to try to 
have a, a understanding of the history of the game in a way that is useful and ultimately enriching the present day fan experience. I'm curious if there's anything, if you had to recommend like two or three things in addition to Cooperstown Casebook for people to watch or listen to or read to really kind of lay the foundation for understanding the history of baseball. Is there anything that comes to mind for you? Boy, I mean, you know, it, it's obviously there's such a, a rich trove of, of historical literature. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the, the the classic is the glory of their times in terms of talking about, you know, these are oral histories from, from old ballplayers from the dead ball era. And that was a really a, a groundbreaking project by Lawrence Ritter uh, in the 1960s, who basically just beat the bushes with I think it was a portable reel-to-reel recorder, finding old ballplayers who you know who just were willing to talk to him and and you know transcribing them and, and editing them into a, you know cohesive narratives. That's that's one obvious place to start. You know if you're interested in the sort of the prehistory of, of of baseball, I know that there are good books out there. I know that John Thorne did one a few years ago called uh, Baseball in the Garden of Eden, which you know kind of chips away at the at the at, you know not only just chips away, just demolishes the double day myth and and highlights some important figures in the evolution of of the game uh you know the the early game but you know as far as you know the more modern more modern takes i mean there's you know there there are millions of books out there i the bill james historical abstracts were invaluable to me in terms of kind of you know getting up to speed on not just a history of the players the best at each position but kind of seeing them through this lens that stripped away some of the mythology uh, of the game and 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 got to a little bit more of the nitty gritty and the inside stuff that that I that I think fascinates me and but you know there's just there's so many things so many different ways to come to this stuff if you're you know if you're a young a younger fan who doesn't have that well grounding I mean look I think it's always a good time to go back and watch the Ken Burns series too I mean right. that that series has its flaws but if you you you're going to get exposed to so many of the major figures of the game over the course of its whatever 20 hours or however long it is. Yeah, you really have to like listening to the national anthem and take me out to the ball game being played solo on a piano for can, much of that yeah, 20 hours. It, it has its stylistic quirks that have not all aged well. There's no question about that. Um, and you have to be patient with... Uh, the particular choice of talking heads that that Burns was working with, some of them, some of whom I happen to like a lot, others of whom maybe have not, you know, aged quite as well. But what you do get there, you know, um, among other things, I think is a really good look at the Negro Leagues and the way th- that that developed in parallel to the major leagues and. You know, it's it's not a whitewashed history in that regard. But you know, like any historical overview, you're gonna miss you're 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 gonna miss certain things. And you know, I would say you get the lay of the land from you know from from these major works, and then, and then find you know find your tangent to go off on. I mean, if it's you know if, if it's your team, if it's the Yankees, or if it's the Reds, or if it's the Giants. I mean, there's just you know, there's great books abound on on just about every franchise, and and you know, there's uh, obviously now we've got more access to old games on video than ever before. You can go out and you can watch a Nolan Ryan no hitter, or you know, a a World Series game from the '70s or '80s, or you know, sometimes even further back, things like that. And there's just so much out there; it can be kind of overwhelming. But uh, you know, I think one of the less grim aspects of doing what I'm doing with these, you know, these, these tributes is, is I think trying to reanimate these players in a way that, that brings them into the 21st century and gives us a 21st century appreciation of somebody whose prime may have been, you know, 50, 60 years ago, even, you know, baseball history is kind of a living history in that way. You know, you can take it out and you can, you know, you can reconstruct a ball game in your mind. You can go back and see what was written about it 50 years ago, you know, things like that. And so it's, uh, I think there's a lot of worthwhile approaches there for anybody who's interested. Yeah. Well, you mentioned being able to go back and watch all-star games and postseason games or monumental single-person performances basically on YouTube. There's the catalog is so deep and even the i remember when i was young espn classic was a huge like the sklar brothers had that cheap seats show that i loved and there was just like a whole bunch of older 
archive footage on there, including the 1960 Home Run Derby TV show. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. For whatever reason, that is so lucid in my brain. And you would never, if you did anything like this today in any sport, like if you had an NBA dunk contest version of this, there's no way that you're getting the types of guys who showed up, who consistently are on that 1960 Home Run Derby show, which is just like the best guys of that era. It's like Aaron and Mantle and like I got a Gus Triandos joke in The Wire that was sort of an aside because of watching (laughs) 60 Home Run Derby. Do you you remember that show at all? Yes. Oh, of course. Yeah. I I know exactly the joke you're talking about too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was funny because some of it is kind of cheesy because they have some clearly, you know, fake swing footage of the guys that are like right up on them. There's no way they'd be swinging at a ball. It looks like they're posing for a baseball card and it's just sort of edited in. Yeah. But the way the guys are alternating with the host and I, I was reading up on it today to prepare for this. I think the host's name was Mark Scott and they only did one year of the show because he died at age 45. Oh God. I didn't uh, know that. And they just decided not to continue with the show, but it was, it was the greats of that era. And some of the, the greatest players of all time, alternating inning by inning playing like a three out version of home run derby and while the other guy's hitting they're sitting with the the host doing like color commentary and and being interviewed and it was just a longer it was more access to those types of players than i had ever been exposed to and yeah i remember sitting and watching those with my my granddad i thought it was an interesting thing and those are all on uh, youtube or at least a bunch of them are yeah, it's been a long it's been a long time since I've seen those episodes, but yeah, you remember I think like it's been a while since my cable system had uh, uh had ESPN Classic, but I remember stumbling on ESPN Classic in the 90s and and, and uh, when I moved to New York and just being like, "Oh my god, I'm watching the 1978 World Series and getting mad all over again when Greg Nettles makes those plays in in, in game 3, stopping the Dodgers from scoring and things like that." But getting back to the home run derby, I think that was done in in the uh Los Angeles Wrigley Field, which was just a band box, which certainly made it, I think, a little bit easier on the uh, on those players. But you know, they were getting money for that at a time at a time when you know pre-reserve clause when money was still a big deal because none of them were being paid anywhere close to what they were worth, even even the stars. Um, so you know, making you know a few hundred bucks here and there by by doing uh, a couple hours uh, of shooting on TV was good use of their time. So I want to let's get into Morgan specifically because the thing that and really this has been something, a version of what I'm about to say has kind of been ruminating in my skull for the last couple months because early on in the year I was writing something about Aaron Nola and I stumbled upon a Phillies podcast that had Ruben Amaro on it and they were talking about scouting and drafting Nola and then Buck Showalter was on some, you know, doing um, color commentary for some of the games including I think some postseason stuff and listening to his comments as well as Amaro's and then, you know, Morgan passing and sort of reflecting on that over the last couple months, I've thought a lot about some of the, some of the folks who are already in the game, who, when the, for lack of a better word, let's call it like the sabermetric enlightenment or, you know, you can apply a, a less, like value-based term to it that doesn't make it sound like it's you know necessarily such a good thing but around the turn of the century when the way teams started to think about baseball began to change the moneyball a's etc and the let's call it the old baseball guard started to resist and the advent of the internet and social media started to grow around the same time that the takeover of that new wave of thinking, we were well into it on the front office side of baseball, and it was starting to creep into media, and there was yet more resistance, especially via things like social media. And Morgan was at the center of this, and there was just like a lot of snark and a lot of, you know, John Stewart Daily Show type of stuff, which I liked and participated in at the time. But now that I've seen 20 some odd years later, that the state of our discourse around all things has taken on this tone. I look back and I'm not sure that we went about things the right way and that in the way sports are often a microcosm for how things in society work, 
I think that maybe collectively, I certainly was culpable that we did not necessarily set the maybe the best example or were as prone to this type of behavior as anybody else was at the time and continues to be basically. But I'm curious mm. as to what your thoughts were on like all that stuff I just said mostly, but yeah. but at the beginning of, of it, how do you remember the discourse around this type of stuff, this new way of thinking in baseball starting around the 2002, I guess, yeah, well, it, it's interesting because I started blogging in 2001. You know, I was I, – just to give you a little bit of background, I grew up reading Bill James when he was uh, you know, featured in Sports Illustrated in 1980 or so, sought out the first mass market baseball abstracts, was into that kind of stuff through high school. I graduated in 88, then kind of put baseball aside, then kind of came back to it in the mid-90s. And uh, found the internet and found all the you know the nut jobs on 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 uh, you know I didn't I never found rec sport baseball but I I was on you know a baseball think factory and baseball reference constantly and you know when baseball prospectus you know arose I was reading that so you know the the that kind of snark and that kind of uh, just call you know alternative way of looking at baseball or, or just you know the the sabermetric movement it was you know it, it was outsiders at the time and. I think when you're an outsider, you can afford this snark because it's it's a rare day when the object of your criticism has to actually confront it directly. You know, it's it's very easy to blog about you know what what an ass Joe Morgan is being on Sunday Night Baseball. You know, when you don't have you know when you're six degrees of separation away from him, you're never going to have to worry about anything getting back. You know, I see this in my work about about the Hall of Fame. I've you know I've been writing about Hall of Fame elections since t- the winter of two thousand one, two thousand two. I'm about to get my ballot for the first time. You know, there are voters that have been taking me seriously. You know, for the better part of the last ten years. You know, people who have actual votes, not just in the, in the writers with the writers' ballot, but people who get on the uh, the the air committees. You know, are listening to me. Suddenly, you know, I I never expected to be in the room. You know, of with the people who actually made the news and i think there when you go when you talk about the the culpability and the conduct i think you know it was easy to be snarky when you had no expectation that you were going to wind up you know making a living working in baseball and eventually you know coming into circulation with people who you could genuinely piss off if you had a you know a high enough perch you know within the the media to criticize somebody like that and it's a, it's a very different thing and i think you know, you you conduct yourself very differently when that's the case. I mean, it's easy to be, you know, in the in the last row throwing spitballs, <laughs> but when you're uh, when you're in the front row and, and and you want them to answer your questions, you have to conduct yourself very differently. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're you're right. That I think applies to most of this stuff. I think it still applies. It's pretty easy for. I mean, I've said stuff in some of the postseason live chats that we've done about like the commentating on some of the games. Because, like, the chances that ESPN would ever want me to be on one of those games seems pretty low. And so Mm -hmm. there's not, or, you know, the chance that A-Rod is writing checks to me one day because he owns a team, like, seem pretty slim. So I don't have any misgivings about saying, like, hey, this even-odd run lead thing is kind of dumb. Like, what are we really talking about here? But, yeah, ultimately, the way I go about saying it sometimes could probably improve and i hadn't thought about this either until you mentioned it but it was coming on both ends for you like from two different fronts because in addition to just the in the game style of thinking the folks who had you know it used to be that the people who worked in front offices are ex-players one of the cesspitous barbecue guys and i were on the phone earlier this week and it was jake mintz and He's like, when's the next time we're going to see an ex-player become a general manager? Like, who is that guy? And I can't, t- I can't tell you. Like, I really don't know. Right. Uh, we've just moved so far away from that. And I think that it's natural. I see it and hear it from my scout contacts and, and friends now that people are fearful and they're defensive. And so the old baseball institution was definitely resistant to that thinking because they knew that a certain type of person was going to encroach on their post-playing career careers. And then also for you on the old media side, this was occurring resistance against blogging. It was so deep that even when I was in college, Jay, you know, we took electives and one of mine was 
a sports journalism elective. And I have a lot of respect for the guy who, who taught that class, but he was very anti-blog at the time and was really instilling in us that like it wasn't a sustainable career path. It was a thing that the industry of media was always going to look down on. And to some extent, the other extreme has happened where some of these big media corporations just take advantage of their like content farms for clickbaity headlines. Right. There's not really a whole lot of analysis going on. You could argue that if you turn on, you know, Skip Bayless in the morning, that you're getting a different version of the same thing with there's just a lot of production value thrown behind it. But yeah, you had it was it was definitely coming at you on, on two fronts there with both the baseball ideology and thinking as well as the blogging versus old media stuff. Yeah, I think that that's true. And also, I think somewhere along the way, you know, as soon as a few people start taking you seriously, you you either, you know, get a big enough microphone and say something dumb and then, you know, get uh, marginalized, you know, to uh, the degree that you deserve to be or, you know, you start you start treating people a bit more diplomatically and, and you know, get a little bit more respect. I had a really eye opening experience. This was, uh, let's see, I don't know, maybe five, seven years ago. I was openly critical of a team announcer, an ex-player. I'm not going to say who. And, you know, I was just like, ah, this guy's, you know, this guy's one of the worst in the game. And, and it was somebody who'd seen me on MLB Network. And, you know, I, I don't know that he necessarily, you know, particularly valued my work, but he was just like, hey. You know, you're you're out of line. You know, you're on the fringes of this industry, but you're you're out of line criticizing. You know, criticizing people. You know, would you like it if I if you want me to critique your spots on you know on the network? And I realized, okay, I got to be more diplomatic about this. So, you know, when people bitch about you know ESPN Sunday Night Baseball or you know or the the national broadcast, I really I bite my tongue now because I'm in the same room with some of these guys. You know, when I do MLB Network spots and. That's not a play. You know, you don't you don't want to have that that extra baggage going on there. So you have to be, you know, you you have to learn to conduct yourself a lot differently. <laughs> and uh, um, and and it's you know that the strategy has has served me well. I mean, growing up, uh, you know, in in that manner, I think was 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 a good thing. It's it's I still, I still I think in some ways try to have it both ways with my you know randomly obscene twitter account and you know combination of seriousness and bullshit but um right. you know it's uh, i do have to put on a suit and tie you know either physically or metaphorically speaking if i want to be taken seriously in, in certain quarters and there's probably some doors that are closed to me because i'm not always like that but you know at the same time that that, that has opened doors yeah but, it's it's an interesting line to walk and it's not like i'm sitting here saying like that Joe Morgan was often dismissive and belittling toward, you know, this newer, at the time, newer thought. And it's not like I'm sitting here saying that, thinking that the Ryan Howard contract extension now, like, I don't suddenly think that that was a great idea or anything like that. But I do think that the way we went about talking about it in the Phillies blogosphere at the time probably could have been more polished, especially as now we have a situation 10 years later where the players are struggling to get paid and you know that economic efficiency is is a thing that teams covet in a way that is not necessarily good for labor again baseball microcosm of different stuff but i do think that the way we went about it at that time and you know i'm using we pretty liberally and was maybe not super precisely great and that there's just a culture, you know, there was already a culture because baseball is so old and was so fraternal, really. And not all of that is great, but it was a culture sort of of its own that people belonged to and was unique and untouched, like a, a coral reef of, of some kind. And I do feel kind of bad about the way it was approached sometimes that it, we shouldn't have bludgeoned it to death with you know, bad faith interpretations of things. Like, again, just microcosm of other societal ills type stuff. Right. Because I do, it's continued now. Like, I'm kind of done doing that. I've reflected on it as a person and and don't want to go about it that way anymore if I can help it. But GM after GM, now it seems, is like a threat to take that philosophical hammer to scouting departments and funnel that money into R&D, which is just has like a bigger ROI, like let's spend money scouting internationally, sign a lot of players, and then spend a ton of money developing those athletes rather than 
having a 40 round draft where we're looking for, you know, college players who are further developed. Like there's just the 31st round college player you, you draft has a much lower chance of being a big leaguer than the 17 year old who you sign and have four years of like high end athletic facility development with methodology that has greatly improved over the last five years. Like this is the calculus teams are doing and some of it makes sense. And it's also costing a lot of people their, their jobs now. Like the, the logical continuation of this thinking is now harmful in some, in some respects. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I think there's, there's like a few things you just said there that in the, in the last couple of minutes that I wanted to touch on. And one, I think going back to, you know, first of all, going back to the, the personalities involved, there was, there was a lot of punching down from, you know, whether it was uh, the Joe Morgans of the world or, in my case, a lot of the the gatekeepers in the baseball media, former Spink Award winners who were dismissive of, you know, when we said, hey, Mike Trout might, might actually be more valuable than Miguel Cabrera, even though Miguel Cabrera just won, you know, the Triple Crown. The response was, nerds. You know, it was it was bullying. It was it yeah. was it was flat out bullying. You know, from from guys like Dan Shaughnessy and and Mitch Album. I'll call them out by name. Their their words are in print. They said it. You know, and it was it, you know it was it was like locker room bullying, and 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 it was just you know you're supposed to be the adults here, but you know it was, it was clearly in that case it was a turf war, as you I think as as you kind of alluded to before. There was the the existential threat, you know, and I think it was probably less less of a threat. Directly in terms of like say a broadcaster like Joe Morgan, but maybe he had the, you know, the thirty thousand foot view of of the way that baseball front offices could evolve if if this uh, uh, analytical stuff took hold. And and now, like you say, you know, there's there's very few chances or there's fewer chances for for players to ascend to to general manager jobs. Scouts are being you know scouting departments are being cut. The draft is being changed. The minor leagues obviously going through a, a massive transformation right now. I think if, if there's if there's regrets that I have in my own culpability in all this, it's that yeah, sort of the unwitting cheerleading of this sort of movement towards like a more rational front office behavior, mostly because we didn't want our team, you know, our favorite team stuck with these, you know, $100 million contracts that, you know, for players that weren't going to produce, you know, because we hope that they would spend that $100 million more wisely. Well, in the end, they decided they're not going to spend that $100 million at all. They're going to, you know, they're going to take that as profit and, and, you know, do something else with it. That's the quote card right there. That is the, <laughs> that's the quote card is, yes, like we would have rather... That money be spent more wisely, and instead they've decided not to they've, spend it at all. They've decided not to spend it exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think that it, you know maybe we should have, you know, some, we should have seen that coming. Some of us, you know, I, and again, I think it's a very broad we here. Sure. I'm, I've never been a threat to to wind up in a front office, just based on my, you know, my age and my and my interest and, and whatever. Nobody needs Hall of Fame analysis done from within the front office, and my math skills aren't aren't good enough to. Whose to number that. should we retire? Let's get yeah, Jaffe exactly. on the case. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that uh, would be great if someone would, employed you just to be like, all right, what is the bar for retiring someone's number? Right. Because I look around it, and again, like all sports, and I'm just like, really, they let someone has Chad Johnson's number with the Bengals? Like, really, someone we're doing this? But yeah, it's really interesting. I do think that baseball stuff, certainly, and probably in a in a broader respect, we just have to find some way of, of better conversing with one another to help, you know, understand what's real and not. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's there's there's a certain certain age appropriate level to it, I guess, is is that, you know, obviously we you know, we're especially uh that sometimes we're sort of, you know, in in the entertainment industry, we want to be entertaining. We want to make, make people laugh. Snark makes people laugh. Taking shots at people who are full of themselves, you right. know, often plays well. But, uh, you know, at the same time, if you're trying to, you know, burnish your credentials as being, a, you know, a, a knowledgeable insider, uh, yeah, getting, getting, getting back to what I was saying before, you got to put kind of put the big boy pants on and, and uh, you know, pull some of those punches sometimes. And, and, uh, and so... You know, you don't get to be uh, the same kind of funny as 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 you were before, and that's uh, you know I think that's there's probably uh, you know somebody who's got a better understanding of 
of uh, of history than I do can probably tell you what that cycle is called or something is, but it's a, like a maturation of industries and in, in, you know in, in in a lot of ways that cycle gets gets repeated over and over. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I do wonder if there are folks who who study the way you know interpersonal communication is conducted, both as far as the medium, which obviously has changed and continues to change. You know, do we need a Fangraphs TikTok? Like, I don't know. <laughs> How are we going to do this? You know, but uh, the only fans fan graphs thing that somebody was throwing around today that was, did you see that? Yeah, I did see that. You know, I thought about like, I've got, I've got some salacious <laughs> photos <laughs> somewhere that are like, you know, that are Twitter appropriate or that are just of me by a pool or whatever that I thought about retweeting on there, but I decided against that. And yeah, it was a funny, it was a clever play there. I thought that was pretty funny. But yeah, I, I hope, hopefully at some point we'll have a more precise way of, of going about this stuff. It is really hard as, especially like the mediums through which we communicate with one another are, are changing faster than we can really get a grip on how they're impacting us. But as far as this one is concerned, podcasting, I think that we've done a fair job. So thanks for coming on with me, Jay. Thanks to everyone for listening. I'm signing off, Eric Longhagen with Jay Jaffe. Thanks for listening to another segment on Fangraphs Audio. Go get him, tiger. Rawr. We're all behind our baseball team. Go get him, tiger. World Series bound and picking up steam. Okay, that was Go Get 'em Tigers, the theme song of the 1968 world champion, Detroit Tigers. I am David Laurela. My guest on this segment is Dan Dickerson, the longtime radio play-by-play broadcaster for the Tigers. Dan, you do not stretch all the way back to 1968 broadcast-wise. <laughs> no, no, but it was the year that got me into baseball and cemented me as a Tigers fan for life. <laughs> Myself, to a certain degree, we are about the same age, and I think we should talk about that 68 team in a few minutes. But let's start with the Megley Ordonez home run in 2006, because while this segment is running on a Friday, today is actually Wednesday, and it is the anniversary of that home run, which is one of your most famous calls. It was uh, was quite a night. I mean, just to set the scene, the Tigers had a 3-0 series lead over the Oakland A's and the ALCS. Megler already hit one home run in that game, and then, you know, the game goes tied to the bottom of the ninth, 3-3, and uh, two outs. Houston Streets in his, you know, third inning of work. He got the last out of the seventh, and now he's pitching in the bottom of the ninth, their closer, and two outs, base is empty, and you're thinking, well, this is going to extra innings. And, you know, as as the legend goes, Dave, uh, you know, the, this would have been the clinching game if they win. So the clubhouse guys are trying to figure out do we have to put the plastic up in the clubhouse for the celebration that's coming? But it's 3-3 in the bottom of the ninth. You know, this is a process. you got to get this done if we're, <laughs> we're going to do this. So one of the clubhouse guys goes down to the dugout, and he's just trying to sense the situation. And I think by the time he gets down there, you know, there's, there's already one out, if not two. But Maglio is the first person he runs into. Now, Maglio's due up fifth that inning. And it's kind of like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, do we need to put up the plastic? And Maglia goes, put it up. And I'm not sure if he guaranteed that he would win it, but he guaranteed the Tigers would win it right there. And sure enough, two outs, base is empty. Craig Monroe single, Placido Polanco single. And quite honestly, you know, as you said, that call certainly has been played a lot. But my thinking going at that point is Maglio is going to deliver a ground ball single to right. He just had a knack. For that ground ball single to get a runner home from third or from second. So I'm picturing a ground ball single to win it. And he wasn't a big power hitter at that point in his career. And he just hit that bomb to left field. I'm so glad it was a no doubter (laughs) because that just made it all the more fun. Right. And that team did not go on to win the World Series, nor did the great teams the Tigers had, what, 2011 through 14, I believe, were the years. Yeah. Which one of those teams should have won, should probably have won the World Series? I think the best team that I've seen in all my years, uh, and this is this was year number 21, I'm calling Tigers games, but even just watching this team since 84 was probably the 2013 team. I mean, that team 
<laughs> was loaded, absolutely loaded in every way that you would want to be loaded. Pitching, I mean, the rotation was ridiculous. They had depth hitting. They outscored their opponents by almost 180 runs. I mean, they had it all. And they were up one game to none at Fenway. Chance to go home in the ALCS in 2013, up two games to none. 5-1 lead in the eighth inning. Come on, a 5-1 lead in the eighth inning. Three different guys load the bases. The fourth pitcher of the inning, Joaquin Benoit, everybody knows, gives up the grand slam to David Ortiz. And the the Red Sox come back and win that one 6-5 and uh, go on to win the series 4-2. But I'm telling you, that team had a little bit of everything. They were impressive, and that's the one that I always felt like just kind of got away from it. So no disrespect to Joaquin Benoit, but I've always thought that if Todd Jones was still the Tigers' closer at that time, the Tigers probably do win a World Series in that four-year stretch. Yeah, he would have loaded the bases by himself. He wouldn't have needed three other relievers to load the bases, and then he would have somehow gotten out of the jam. <laughs> a couple of other great teams that did win championships, Dan, were, of course, the 1968, which we heard the theme song, and 1984. Which of those two teams do you think was greater? I'll never pick between the two of them. It's funny. You talk to the 68 guys. They think they were better, and the 84 guys think they were <laughs> They always have a healthy debate about it. No, I won't pick one just because, truly, they were different teams and really kind of different eras and... They both meant so much to the city, but obviously the 68 team was such a unifying force for the city of Detroit at that time. And um, the 84 team just had some amazingly talented players and characters, and they both played the game a certain way. Obviously, I I have probably more memories of the 84 team because I was nine years old in 68, but there's no question that 68 team, I mean, you're just becoming a baseball fan and you get exposed to Tiger baseball at that time, uh, you get hooked. And uh, that team absolutely uh, helped foster my love of baseball. And the 84 team was just fun to watch. And as I said, I've got relationships with a lot of those guys, whether it's Jack Morris or Kirk Gibson or Dan Petrie or Alan Trammell, because they're all around the ballpark all the time. And that's, that's a lot of fun. But those are just two great teams. The 1987 Tigers were also great. I believe yeah. they won 98 games. And they started that year 11 and 18. They lost to the uh, 85-win Twins, who went on to win the World Series. That really ties into this year with the expanded playoffs of teams that maybe don't deserve to be there actually Mm -hmm. coming out ahead. It does. And I think uh, many have written well about this very topic, about what happens when you expand the playoffs. And it was very predictable, whether it was stories that were being written in January and February. I think February, when the commissioner talked about expanding it to seven teams and allowing uh, teams to pick which team they would face in the first round. And then the point that has been made that I think is very true. Now, I didn't have a problem with it this year. I really didn't because it was a 60-game season, and it's, it seemed like it was a logical thing to do this year to make sure that, you know, a team like Houston, which is better than a 29-31 and 31 team, I think they would have been better over 162, allow them to make the playoffs. But you are absolutely guaranteed that the eighth place team and probably the seventh place team in each league was going to be around the 500 mark and below the 500 mark. But the bigger point is now the best races, quote unquote, are happening between mediocre teams and the focus is directed away from the really good teams at that point in the season. And we should be talking about races maybe for the top spot, which maybe, you know, holds a lot more interest because there's two great teams fighting a 95 win and a 97 win team, for instance. Uh, so I have no desire to see this expanded in the in the years ahead. I, I certainly hope they don't, because the other point that many have made is it just encourages teams to build, you know, a team that can finish around the 500 mark. So every few years, you've got a chance to maybe sneak in as the eighth place team. That's not exciting. That's not the, the races we should be cheering for. That's not what we should be urging teams to do, build a mediocre team so that you can every once in a while, catch lightning in a bottle and and sneak in and maybe make a long run. I think expanding maybe to six is okay, but I think expansion is going to come. But eight teams with the format this year, I would certainly hope they're not going to duplicate it. And I, I can't really picture teams doing that. I can't picture the union being good with that, put it that way, because it doesn't do anything to help players down the road in terms of salaries, uh, in terms of incentives to build great teams, in terms 
you know, paying players the big contracts so that they can become a big piece on your team takes away a lot of that incentive. And I, I think that's not that's not a good thing. We we want to see greatness in the postseason, not mediocrity. And on the uh, on the subject of building teams, the Tigers are obviously rebuilding. How close or far are they from actually contending for one of those spots? That's a good question. I, I just think that this year was harmful in so many ways for an organization like Detroit, which now has, I think by national consensus, a, a farm system that's top five by MLB pipeline, top 10 by most. A year like this where you had no minor leagues really, really hurt this organization in terms of what is that timeline for competing? You didn't get any at-bats for some of your greatest prospects. I mean, Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson, Spencer Torkelson drafted this year, could have obviously gotten some key at-bats. Riley Green advanced three levels last year to low A ball. He would have been at high A ball this year and probably would have finished at double A and would have had people talking about his debut maybe in 2021 because the good ones come quick. And he got zero at-bats this year other than inter-squad games, which, let's face it, aren't really going to help your skills. You can work with all the hitting coaches and probably advance in some areas in terms of your abilities, but you need games. And same with the pitchers. I mean, Tarek Skubal and Casey Mize both made their major league debuts and ended up pitching 60 innings combined, not even. And they could have logged 250 innings or 280 innings combined in the minor leagues, maybe in the major leagues this year. So this organization, maybe more than most, was hurt by the fact that there were no minor leagues this year. And I think it was a shame that they didn't figure out some way to have a, a minor league season, whether it was a hybrid of double A, triple A, or A and low A, uh, whatever it was, it just seemed like uh, baseball could have, I understand they were losing money, but this is your future you're talking about. And it raises so many questions, Dave, for, for the coming years in terms of workloads for pitchers, how are you going to cover the 1,500 innings at the major league level and roughly 1,300 innings at the minor league level in terms of arms for guys who did not pitch or hardly pitched in 2020, those young arms, not the veteran arms, the young arms that you're trying to build up to become those six and seven inning guys. So to answer your question, this year was a setback in terms of that timetable. I do think we saw some position players that you could really get excited about whether it's Willie Castro, who did a phenomenal job uh, offensively. And I think he showed, even in a small sample size, this kid has got a, a gift <laughs> for hitting all kinds of pitching. Uh, and he's just getting started. Derek Hill is a guy that I get excited about because the Tigers have never really, I mean, Curtis Granderson for a few years, Austin Jackson for a few years, but never really had that long-term center fielder who can go get it gap to gap. And this is a ballpark that has one of the, biggest center fields in captivity and you want that guy and Derek Hill could be a really exciting player for years to come and the question now is is he a Gerard Dyson type fourth outfielder with great defensive skills or can he be a well I don't know a Kevin Pillar who has maybe a little below average offensive skills but is good enough that he's a very valuable player because of his defense and center field I think of guys like that as building blocks if if Derek Hill can learn how to hit enough Isak Paredes, I think, is going to be a really good hitter at the major league level. Didn't show a lot, but I think the 100 plate appearances or so that he got is going to help him in the years ahead. And and the pitching staff, there's no question. Tarek Skubal is going to be a force. Casey Mize is going to be fine. He did not have a great year, but he learned from it. That kid's got immense talent that he didn't really get a chance to put on display this year. Matt Manning, Alex Fiedo, but Matt Manning is going to be a big piece of this organization, big piece of the rotation years to come. They definitely got some pieces, but I, everybody knows about the pitching. We got a chance to see some of the position players, and I do think there are some pieces. Corner outfielder, left-handed bat, power hitting first baseman, catcher. I mean, those are the needs going forward. Some of those can be addressed from the farm system, maybe, if these guys pan out. But the lack of development, lack of at-bats in the minor leagues, really hurt guys like Riley Green, especially. And the Tigers obviously need a new manager. What type of manager <laughs> do the Tigers need at this point? Well, it's interesting to hear Al Avila talk about the attributes that he's looking for, that leadership quality, the, the ability to 
you know, be a, an evaluator of talent to help build the roster. I mean, he's going to provide the players, obviously, but, you know, how that roster comes together, you know, Jim Leland had a gift, I thought, for understanding which players, you know, had the talent to maybe make the jump from the minor leagues to the major leagues and the the leadership qualities in terms of how you handle things, how you coach these guys, how you address things that come up in the clubhouse, how you interact with each individual player to get the most out of those players. That, to me, is the gift of a really good manager, that ability to understand your players so that you can get the most out of them by saying the right thing at the right time or not saying something at a particular moment. Every manager knows the game. The in-game strategy, I'm, I'm pretty sure, is not really I know fans might disagree, but I mean, the, everybody knows what basically how to run a game. I think if you've been a manager, I do think it's important that you've been a manager or a bench coach, but it's, it's that ability to, to get the most out of your players. And that, that's a, I say it takes a certain level of personality <laughs> to do that, to, paired with your knowledge, paired with an understanding of the analytics. And this coaching staff, you know, the Ron Gardner coaching staff, people are like, well, he was old school. Hey, he embraced the analytics. And he had guys on his staff. I'm telling you, Joe Vavra, in terms of understanding the numbers and working with the numbers and making them usable for players, is at the very leading edge of understanding analytics and their uses and how to use them and how to make use of the numbers. He's phenomenal. He was our quality control coach last year, the hitting coach this year. So this staff really was pretty savvy, I thought, overall in terms of the use of the numbers. I think it's always important that, you know, what, what they would emphasize, like talking with a Dave Clark about the outfielders and positioning, you know, making sure that you're not just looking at that laminated card and being rigidly guided by that card and your positioning in the outfield, that you have to develop instincts and you have to let these guys learn to develop those instincts at the major league level. Yes, give them all the knowledge about that hitter at the plate, but you've got to be able to read what does your pitcher have that day? Where is he missing with his fastball? Does he have a fastball that he can locate today? What is this guy trying to do in this situation? All those things have to go into how you position yourself three steps to the left or in four steps to your right versus just a laminated card that says, here are his tendencies, you have to play here. And I think that's why this coaching staff was really, really good. And I think every coaching staff, I think the good ones do that. I think they, you, how else are you going to develop instincts unless you let them play and then understand that, okay, when they make a mistake, maybe in positioning, what were you thinking there? Okay, the thought process was good, but maybe you didn't think about this. So that to me is a good coaching staff, marrying the analytics with the baseball knowledge, with the in-game events so that you're... You're following the game and you're, you're thinking the game as it goes along. So having said that, I think I go back and forth on this a lot. But I mean, if you just took this scandal out of the picture, A.J. Hinch really is about as good a candidate as you could find. Uh, just in terms of all the things that Alavila says he's looking for. He's got the scouting background, the front office background, the managerial background, understands the analytics and how to use them. Uh, it's, it's a strong candidate. And the fact that Al Avila said he and Alex Cora are both on his list, I think certainly puts those two probably near the top if you decide that how they handled the 2017 scandal. Uh, and I think A.J. Hinch took full responsibility. If you read his comments, he, he did. He didn't shy away from it. He understood that he probably could have done more. I'm not sure he could have said anything more in terms of his I think he was remorseful, and I think he took full responsibility. I'm not sure what more you could want out of somebody. But that won't be the end of the list. I think there are some others. I mean, let's face it. You can see these lists that get put out there, and there are probably 20, 30 additional names that are out there who could be really good candidates that we have no idea about. Don Kelly's getting mentioned. He's a bench coach at Pittsburgh right now, very popular former Tiger. I'd love to you know, see how that interview goes. But is he ready right now to run a major league clubhouse? I don't know. It takes a certain skill, it takes a certain deftness uh, to do that. So he's intriguing, though. You know, Vance Wilson, third base coach for the Kansas City Royals, was very much on the managerial track from the minor leagues to the major leagues. I think he's intriguing. Sandy Alomar intrigues me. Everybody that I've talked to said he did a great job. Really, he was a manager for most of the year for the Cleveland Indians this year with the health problems that Terry Francona had. And uh, those who watched him in action and watched how he handled the day-to-day -day were really impressed. 
I think Sandy Alomar should be on anybody's short list right now. So those are the kinds of things you think about. And he's a catcher. And let's face it, catchers have an edge over just about everybody else when it comes to managerial openings. <laughs> it does seem like it, Dan. And whomever steps in, and we should probably close with this question, Miguel Cabrera will be a big part of the team next year. Just what is his legacy? Where does he fit among the all-time greats in Detroit? That's a, that's a good one. And you, you really look at the best, just talking about a best pure hitter in Tigers history, I think he's got to be top four. And I would put Ty Cobb, Al Kaline for his longevity and for his greatness. And Hank Greenberg, who just was robbed of potentially putting up phenomenal numbers in his career by missing almost five full years uh, serving during World War II, serving in the military during World War II. So those would be my top four. And, uh, you know, Greenberg hit for average and for power like Miggy. Ty Cobb was obviously a different hitter. Al Kaline was a different hitter. But, I mean, those first eight years at Miguel Cabrera with the Detroit Tigers after being traded from Florida, hit 325 with a 980 OPS. I mean, there's just no – I've never seen anybody – at his peak, you just – teams would make sure they would anyway try to stay away from getting Miguel Cabrera up one more time in the late innings. And the, the number of big hits he delivered against great pitchers, I would urge everybody to – because I was looking at it earlier today. Go look up that at-bat against Mariano Rivera in uh, 2013, and I think it was in August, when, you know, the Tigers are down 3-1 in the ninth inning, and Rivera's on the mound, and Miguel's facing, I mean, two great hitter, great pitcher, obviously, and uh, that's a great at-bat. I mean, th- those are the kinds of moments that I, nobody does like Miguel, and obviously the injuries have really robbed him of some of that production in recent years. I still think, Dave, I still think there's a close to peak Miggy year in there. We saw some signs at the very last part of this season, but it is a lower level of production the last four years. So you're battling the odds heading into your late 30s. But I still think it's in there. I still think Miguel is still capable. We've seen the great ones in their late 30s put up big seasons. I still think he's got one more good one in him. But his legacy is already cemented. He's going to be one of the top I would say, again, that group, four or five hitters in Tigers history uh, with the combination of power, production, and the ability to hit for average. A future Hall of Famer for certain. Yeah. I am David Lorela. That was Dan Dickerson. Thanks for uh, coming on to uh, to the podcast. And uh, let's close by saying, go get them, Tigers. <laughs> Absolutely. Any Tiger fan from that era can sing right along with all those words. <laughs> This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you'd like to help us grow the show, you can help spread the word. An iTunes review and rating is helpful, or maybe send a link to a friend or family member that you think would enjoy it. Your support helps us do everything we do. We will be back next week. Until then, thank you for listening.